Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Susie Godson studied graphic design at St. Martin's and the Royal College of Art. She ran a successful design practice for 15 years before retraining as a psychologist. She is now recognized as a leading expert in the field of sex and relationships, has been the Times Sex and Relationships columnist for 16 years, and her books have been translated into 15 languages. During lockdown, she's been writing up her psychology PhD, and Susie is the co-founder of Me Too Education and responsible for research and design. So a very warm welcome, Susie. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Delighted to be here. Well, when we realized your, your level of expertise, we have so many questions for you. We're not going to be able to pack them all into one podcast, but I did want to start by saying, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, possibly with a crescendo coming, Christmas is coming. What do you do as someone who's a, a psychologist and expert in relationships to sort of manage your own self-care as we move into this difficult period? I think that's something people would probably want to ask you. Well, I really struggle because I'm a workaholic and we, Me Too app is supporting nearly 60,000 young people um, and it's a more than full-time job. <laughs> so I'm really overworked and it's so exciting and so fascinating that I find it really hard to stop working. So I did something that I am eternally grateful for just before lockdown started, I bought myself a Peloton. And so I use it for yoga, Pilates and cycling. And I try and do that, you know, three or four mornings a week. And that has kept me sane and kept me together because I feel that if I, it's not even about fitness, it's about sanity. It's about just having that half an hour to yourself to, just focus and empty your mind of, of everything that's going on. But I have to say, you know, I'm not the greatest. I am guilty of just going at 100 miles an hour all the time. It's very difficult, isn't it? I think the pandemic has given us an opportunity to really, really look into our own individual coping strategies in a way that perhaps we'd never had to do before. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think my situation has been a bit different in that I've always worked at home, you know, so I've never gone into an office really because I've always been working on my own projects. So that didn't change for me, whereas my husband, who works in an office, just couldn't handle working from home. I mean, he absolutely hated it. But I, because I work for myself, I get completely absorbed in what I'm doing. And because... At the start of lockdown, we had 20,000 users and we now have 60,000 users. The whole Me Too app exploded and so my workload trebled. And I guess that was unusual too because a lot of people might have been doing less or not feeling quite as pressured, whereas we trebled and in size and 
So it's become even more crazy than it was. Well, Susie, let's contextualize the sort of the importance of the app. Okay. So we're going to talk about your Me Too app and that's M-E-E-T-O-O. Okay. And you and I know that uh, there is an overwhelming demand for mental health support, for counseling that quite frankly, some of the official services are just unable to cope with. And I think that was your inspiration for the app. Is that accurate? Well, it's a mix of things. I mean, I actually thought of the idea a really long time ago, and I thought about it in the context of my work at the Times, where I get a lot of emails and letters from young people who have issues that they can't talk to family or friends about, and that will be everything from, you know, being concerned about sexuality or gender or relationships. And I had always felt that creating a safe space via an app where they could ask questions safely and also ask each other questions and that's really important because being able to ask a similar aged peer about something gives you a completely different perspective so as a simple example we often get posts from young people who who say I'm 16 I've never been kissed I'm a weirdo what's wrong with me and they will get other 16-year-olds going, or 17-year-olds going, I'm 17 and I've never been kissed and there's nothing wrong with me, it's completely normal. And you can't get that from another adult, you can't get that from a parent. They'll just tell you, oh, you're fine. And of course, in the young person's mind, that isn't fine at all. So when it comes from a peer, it has a, a, a gravity and a meaning that it doesn't have when it comes from an adult. So I knew that peer support was hugely important. Um, I met my co-founder, Shoshton Comley, who is where I am, psychology and design. She is tech and education. And the combination is actually a really good dynamic. And we built a little pilot, trialed it in a few schools, but rapidly realized that you can't separate out these issues. So the young person who's worried about coming out to his parents is also being bullied at school is suffering from anxiety and is very scared about his academic results. And so it goes under a mental health umbrella, but it's really support with absolutely every aspect of a young person's life. And the model is that they support each other, but it's pre-moderated. So every post and reply is checked by a human before it goes into the app, which means it's completely safe and it's the only app NHS-approved peer support app for children as young as 11. So it's aimed at young people, I think, aged 11 to 25. So if I'm the parent allowing my 12-year-old to use it, how do I know the sort of the 25-year-old adult wouldn't groom them, for example, if they're feeling vulnerable online? The app is age-banded. So if your child is 13, they will see posts from an 11-year-old up to a 15-year-old, and that age banding travels with them as they get older. And the fact that every single post or reply is moderated by a human means that there is no exchange of personal information. People can't say, oh, my Snapchat handle is X, come and meet me on Snap. All of that is moderated out. So it creates this incredibly safe space where kids can be completely anonymous And that's very important because it's only through making it anonymous that they can open up about the stuff that they can't talk about otherwise. And, you know, we've also been independently evaluated by 
UCL and Anna Freud Center, and they found statistically significant evidence that using Me Too improves mental health. They tracked 876 kids for nine months who were using the app and did face-to-face -face interviews. And, you know, they found that it increases confidence, decreases feelings of loneliness, increases connectedness, makes young people better at managing their own mental health. So it's one of the only evidenced digital support, mental health support tools for young people. Fantastic. And again, from the parent perspective, I think just running through some of the things that parents might be thinking about, the posts are checked by trained moderators, but who are they and how are they selected? So all our moderators have a background in, in mental health. So some of them are, you know, trained mental health practitioners. Some of them are former childline counsellors. Some of them have worked for the Samaritans. But the moderator's job is really to risk assess the post and to tag it according to the topic. If there's anything high risk, it goes into a quarantine where it's immediately looked at by a qualified counsellor. So there's a sort of two-tier safeguarding system in that respect. So the moderators will decide if something shouldn't be published and if it's unsuitable, they'll send a, you know, a message to the person to tell them why it's not going to be published and they'll let it through to the feed. But if it's higher risk, it's, it gets dealt with by a counsellor. And can you share with us any sort of lovely stories where perhaps a young person came onto the app and was seeking support and potentially even the app averted a potential crisis or emergency situation? I can indeed. I'm just going to pull up something and I'm going to read you two posts which were made by a 15-year-old boy his username was Cosmic Kiwi Hacker, and it's okay for me to read them out because he's given me permission to share them. And his first post was made on the 10th of May, and he says, I hate my life. I've self-harmed. I haven't slept for days at a time. I've suffered through eating disorders, anxiety, to the point where I'm afraid to talk to people. And the moment I seem to get better, the cycle starts again. The scars are back on my arm. My mind filled with negative thoughts, I become suicidal. So that's a young person in extreme distress. And this is a post written by the same boy on the 9th of September. He says, I don't want to jinx it, but I think we've done it. I haven't cut in ages. I'm two months clean. I'm eating two or three meals a day. And after countless relapses, I'm now stable. I'm balancing college and a part-time job, and I don't feel like ending it anymore. Thank you to everyone that's helped me. Seriously, you're the reason I'm still here today. So that sort of peer support and reduction in isolation through the yeah. app has been really transformative for him. I think the other thing is that it's really difficult for a young person. I get emotional when I read those posts because I just, you know, it's so moving. But for a young person who's struggling with all of those issues, if they come out and tell a teacher or a parent the parent and teacher immediately go into crisis mode. And the trouble is self-harm, as you know, is a coping mechanism. So the minute, the minute they reveal their struggles, their coping mechanism is basically taken away from them. And what the app does is it gives young people a chance to experiment with trying to stop and failing without being judged or humiliated so that they have the courage to try again. And within that support system, they are able to make those 
changes by themselves. And that's why it becomes a bit of a team effort. You've got that backup and that boy knows that everybody who's talking to him on the app understands his situation. They're not judging him. They understand what it feels like to be in that state. And so they're able to support him. And if he fails, they will support him still. And in the end, he's come through. And this is what happens over and over again with the young people that use our app. And presumably the fact that posts are moderated ensures that there's no kind of egging on, for example, that may happen through social media. Absolutely not. I mean, it's the absolute counterpoint to unmoderated social media or even post-moderated or algorithm-moderated social media. You know, it's completely human. It's driven by human. And that's, that's so important because context is everything. You know, AI cannot understand the nuance and the context in, in what these kids are talking about. So it looks like social media. It's as convenient as social media for young people, but it's absolutely a service in that it is supported, it is guided, it is moderated, and there are counsellors there to catch anybody who looks like they're falling. And Susie, as a researcher myself, I would be very interested in who's using it. I think the Centre for Educational Neuroscience, which we all know and love, I think when they were writing about it, they said it seemed to be very appealing to boys, which is very interesting, isn't it? I think 42% of your users were male. I can give you all the demographics because I've just been running a lot of demographic data gathering within the app. So I can tell you that 7% of Me Too users are Asian. And that's interesting because Asian ethnic groups make up 7.5% of the UK population. 4% of our users are black. Black ethnic groups make up 3.3% of the UK population. 6% of Me Too users are mixed race. And mixed multiple ethnic groups make up just 2.2% of the population. And 4% are from other ethnic groups. Also, very interestingly, 3% of Me Too users are currently in the social care system and 3% of young people in the UK are in the social care system. And that's really important because it means that we are reaching the most vulnerable kids in society. And if you think about the fact that 9% of youth suicide occurs in young people under 20 who are looked after children, the fact that we are able to engage them is phenomenal. 16% of Me Too users are autistic, 40% are boys, and we have a really high percentage of young people who are LGBT. So we we are managing to engage the hardest to engage, and that makes me feel really proud. And there's a lovely paragraph, I think, from the Centre for Educational Neuroscience's review of the app, where they say the app is designed to look and feel like social media, but it's completely gender neutral. All visual hierarchies are stripped out. Profile images are a simple colored circle, which users can change. And by creating an app that looks cool and actively avoids all self-help stereotypes, you know, the app is something particularly boys will engage with because we know that boys' emotional literacy is a real challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, young adult males are the least likely of any group to seek help, mental health support. And boys, as we know, are three times more likely to die by suicide. So engaging boys was really one of our primary focus. And so in a sense, we knew that we would attract girls because girls are much more likely to seek support. 
So we sort of designed it all to appeal to boys, knowing that we'd get girls anyway. And it's working. And it's because it's completely anonymous. You know, when you when you register an account, you shake your phone and that randomly generates a three-word username. They're incredibly difficult. To, there's no gender attached to those names at all. So it will be something like Big Yellow Giraffe. So you, you just have no concept of whether that is male or female or non-binary. And it just allows young people to be more honest about what's going on in their lives. Now, apparently I read that you had created a book potentially called Me Too Teenage Mental Health yeah. Handbook, which had won the BMA Health and Social Care Book of the Year. Can you tell us where we can access that? Well, we're kind of running low on stocks now. But yeah, so we it's kind of a typical Me Too story. We needed to do some marketing. You know, we needed to create something to do some marketing. And I just thought we have all these amazing stories from young people. And I thought, why don't I go out and interview all the top experts in mental health? Because, you know, I work as a journalist as well. So that's kind of something that I do anyway. So I managed to get all these amazing interviews with people like Sarah Jane Blakemore and Simon Wesley and... David Gunnell and Sir Richard Layard and Anthony Seldon and all sorts of people. And then we had all this, these amazing stories from young people. And that was really important because you never hear the voice of young people talking about their own mental health experiences and how kind of complex and, you know, multi-layered the whole thing is. And so we put that together and then we created this directory of resources. So there was all sorts of advice and information and things to do in the directory in the middle. And I sort of entered it into the British Medical Association Health and Social Care Book of the Year Awards almost as a sort of, I just didn't think we had a chance because it would be up against all these incredibly heavyweight medical tomes. And it won. Wow. (laughs) It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's been a huge, huge success in that it's just the directory that we built for that. In lockdown, we did this huge piece of development work really rapidly and we built all that directory into the app. So the kids can now go into the app, they can filter their feed. So for example, for a young person who's autistic, they can go in and click on autism and it filters their feed so that all their posts and replies are about autism or from kids who have autism And then they can go into the directory and all their directory is resources around autism or neurodiversity or things that will be useful or interesting or support groups that are specialists. So so it started as a book and then it led us to develop the app into this really comprehensive resource. Wonderful. And Susie, a couple of questions from parents who knew I was interviewing you today. With the app, how do we know that the 11-year-old who's registered is 11? How do you do the age verification at the beginning of this process? So if there was a way of doing age verification, even if you've got people to send in their passports, there's no way of doing age verification. The only way to really be secure in terms of what interactions are going on is to moderate. And so that's why we pre-moderate. So you could go in and say you are 14. And if you are replying to other people and you're giving valuable advice, it doesn't matter that you're not 14. But as soon as you try and say something or do something that tells us 
you know, that there's something else going on, that gets screened out. So pre-moderation, checking every single post and reply, everything is risk assessed, risk tagged, topic tagged. And then at every night, somebody goes through all the posts again to make sure, A, that they've all had, you know, suitable replies, B, that they're all in the right risk category, and just double checking anything that might have been missed. So we put safeguarding at the absolute heart of everything that we do. And that's what our users value about it. They know that they know that it's safe. And we always felt that moderation might be a real turn-off for young people, but actually they like it. They like the fact that somebody is making sure that that they are safe and that everything that goes through is useful and supportive and kind and empathic and that there's no meanness, there's no judgment, there's no bullying and there's no humiliation. And Susie, what have you noticed over time in terms of certainly the past couple of years? What are the themes? What are the changing interests or concerns of young people? I mean, we our data is extraordinary because obviously because the app is pre-moderated and all our data is sorted out by category and by age group and by date, etc. The things that I have found initially very alarming, but having done a lot more research into it, I understand it better now. But when I realized that, you know, the peak age for self-harm was 13 and that it starts increasing from 11 and then peaks at 13 and then starts to tail off, how is that? 13-year-olds, it's just so young. What's going on? And then I did an awful lot of research into the cognitive changes that are happening in the brain when young people are just in adolescence. And it's the, the social threat becomes incredibly heightened in young people of that age. And that unfortunately happens just as they're going into secondary school and making that big transition probably from a smaller primary where they knew lots of people into a secondary school where not only is there more young people, but they're at an age where they're experimenting with identity. So they're changing friendship groups and there's a level of instability. And that coupled with the fact that young people's brains are heightened to social exclusion and to social threat it's that juxtaposition that makes young people much more likely to self-harm. And self-harm, you know, they've done studies and young people use it as a way of reducing tension. And it does reduce tension, but at the same time, what it does is it increases feelings of guilt and shame. And so then those feelings of guilt and shame create the tension. So they get relief from the act they get relief from their tension, but then it increases feelings of guilt and shame, which increase tension, which starts the whole cycle again. And breaking that cycle is how to stop the cycle of self-harm. So we, you know, we've done a huge amount of research into that, and that is all information that we we pass on in age-appropriate ways to the young people using the app. Because the worst thing about all of this stuff is that it's kept secret. And therefore, it's really difficult for young people to know what they can do to help themselves. And they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so being able to help them to unpack that a bit then gives them the courage and confidence to try and stop it. That's right. The two things that you've just said, secrecy is something we really want to be able to explode and and have 
that transparent culture where they're able to seek peer support is fundamental. And I also think that as things progress and maybe even more lockdowns come, that, you know, need to have social support across digital platforms is is really critical, isn't it? Yeah. And I can understand from a parent's point of view, you know, parents want to feel that they are in charge of their children, that they know their children well enough. They would love to know what their children are doing on social media. And I do understand that. But children also need to have a sense of agency. They need to know that they can do things for themselves, by themselves. And what we have created is a safe space for them to do that. You know, we've put the structure in place. It's a bit of a Montessori principle, you know, freedom within structure. It's bounded, it's guided, it's moderated. And so it's a safe place for them to explore those things that maybe they can't talk about or they are keeping secret or bottling up. So Susie, in practical terms, it's very easy to download because I've already done it to my phone this morning. Um, It's just literally looking for it in the app store, M-E-E-T-O-O, and it's got a beautiful yellow little speech bubble within a a white square, and that's it. It's very easy to access. It's easy to access, very easy to use because it's beautifully designed. Thanks to my background as a designer, I was able to, you know, utilize those skills. And it's, you know, it is, it's designed to be very, very simple and intuitive so that an 11 year old can use it. Well, listen, Susie, thank you for all your enormous hard work that's gone into it. And uh, I can I, I can completely imagine now why it's impossible for you to switch off. It's so interesting. It's And it's also, we are supporting all these kids and we have a duty of care to them. And we, I feel very emotionally invested in it. Well, thank you. And I hope that you do manage to relax over the holiday period. And we'll certainly be telling all of our schools about it and the young people that we are able to reach through our parent community. So thank you so much for joining me today. And if you'd like me to send you a book, let me know. Just send me an address and I'll get you some stuff in the post. Lovely. I certainly will. Thank you so much, Susie. Take care. Lovely to meet you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.